My name's Andre Gonoela. Welcome to the Burn Bag Podcast. I'm being joined by my co-host Ryan Rosenthal, and we're delighted to be joined on this special President's Day episode by Zeke Miller, who is the current president of the White House Correspondents Association and the current White House reporter for the Associated Press. Uh, before Zeke was at the Associated Press, he was also the White House correspondent for Time Magazine and was prior to that a a politics reporter for both BuzzFeed and The Business Insider. We're going to have a great conversation today on the White House correspondents and what they do, and a bit of a discussion on the presidency itself and media coverage of the presidency. So, Zeke, we're happy to be joined by you. Thanks for coming on. Thank you for having me. Thank you, Zeke, once again for joining us. So I want to kind of start the conversation off by discussing what it is that White House correspondents do and also what the, the White House Correspondents Organization does, right? Because you are dual-hatted, right? You lead, uh, you're a president of the organization, but you're also a correspondent for your respective uh, media organization. And so could you kind of help us understand uh, what these, what the organization does and what your role as a correspondent is? Sure, I'll go to reverse order there. Um, you know, White House Correspondents are the eyes and ears of the American people um, and people around the world uh, on, the, on the President of the United States. Not everyone could be uh, with the president, you know, pretty much close to 24-7, particularly when the president is not on the White House grounds or in, at, in the White House briefing room, um, where, you know, in terms of we're, we're there to keep the public up to date on, on their comings and goings, their doings, their policies, their actions. It's sort of a, an odd beat where it's, you know, it spans everything from, you know, uh, the politics of the president and the presidency and electoral, electoral politics policy uh, around, you know, domestic policy, foreign policy, um, and then also a, a good bit of human interest uh, because the president, you know, the leader of the free world is itself sort of an inherently interesting person. So there's an element of that as well, uh, which makes it a, a fascinating beat that, that changes by the day. Uh, and in a lot of ways, anything, we like to say anything is sort of a White House story because what the president thinks about anything is inherently newsworthy. Um Separately, my role as a White House correspondent, as the president of the Correspondents Association, my job is to advocate on behalf of the public uh, by ensuring that those White House correspondents, where their eyes and ears, can do their jobs effectively. Uh, that means everything from ensuring that you know, if, if making sure that they can get on Air Force One with the president and uh, you know have a hotel to stay at when the president travels overseas, um, to uh, Advocating for access at the White House complex to, to make sure that the what we call the, the press pool, which is the smaller subset of correspondents around the president, um, can, have, can have access to meetings and, and, and can do and do their jobs effectively. Certainly. And how is sort of the White House press pool and the Correspondents Association? How has it changed over the decades? I mean, I remember reading some history books on, for example, President Franklin D. Roosevelt's polio, right? And like certainly people in the media knew about that, but didn't report about it. But now we sort of see a lot that's being reported, all the details, all the president's thoughts to an extent. So how has it changed in terms of the depth it goes into reporting on the president, and also what is being reported. It, it certainly changed uh, with the times. When the association was started in the Wilson administration, it was primarily um, to uh, keep out people who were engaged in essentially political intelligence or, or, or uh, doing uh, or helping stock pickers on Wall Street get ins the inside scoop on what the government was doing. So it was, it was to separate bona fide reporters. Um, from sort of those who are working for financial firms, uh, and we've come a long way since then. You know, to uh, uh, you know, 
and and our and the coverage has sort of moved along with sort of it has evolved with the national uh, media landscape. So uh, certainly, when it comes to reporting on uh, the the personality of the president, that is certainly you know some of that uh, changed in, in in the Kennedy years. Uh, some of that changed even more after Watergate. Um, and some of that certainly has changed after the last administration, maybe the last couple of administrations as well. There's a lot more interest in who the president is, not just as a policymaker, as a politician, but who they are as a person. Um, and that is uh, also part of the job. Yeah, undoubtedly. And so, I mean, when I think of, of you know, White House uh, reporting, I think of Watergate initially. And of course, under, you know, the previous administration, the Trump administration, uh, White House reporting was instrumental. And now we've seen a shift where it might be a bit calmer. Uh, than what we've previously seen. So, what? How has the the association kind of changed with the times? Right, we we've seen that uh, you know Watergate was was that a defining moment? Have we seen other defining moments? And how do you think that the White House Correspondents Association today? What's what's the feeling amongst the correspondents as we've transitioned into this new administration? And that's a good point. Uh, a good point for me to sort of. You know, explain a little bit more about what we do and what we aren't. You know, we are not, uh, as an association, anyone's editor. We're not, uh, you know, we don't police the editorial content of our members or tell them what to write or what not to write or how to do it. Uh, we're there to sort of ensure that they have the ability to exercise their First Amendment rights. So uh, it, it, it's a, it, it's often a misconception that, the, you know, uh, that, that the public may have about, you know, who we are and what we do. We're not sort of a top-down organization. It's really sort of the grassroots the bulk of what we do is is focused on logistics. So for us, some of the the, the biggest you know milestones were you know were nine eleven uh, when uh, you know in terms of the security sort of uh, uh, posture that was put in place around the White House. Um, January 6th, 2021, was probably another milestone there as well in terms of how the security posture around the leaders of the free world and the logistics that go into ensuring that you know that the, the public can still have eyes and ears on them in the form of, a, of, a, of, a, of the press uh, can continue um, in, in that new environment. Um, certainly in the last administration, uh, you know, it, we saw some truly fantastic White House reporting, some of the, you know, the, the best reporting uh, we've seen in decades on the president in, in a lot of ways, I think in the, in the new administration. Now you're still seeing a lot of very good reporting. A lot, it's a lot more focused on the the policy uh, right now, and I think that some of that's just reflective of the of a different tone set by the administration, uh, where there's a there's a steady drumbeat of 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 real policy being rolled out day in and day out. That is, you know, you know, keeping us very busy in terms of you know reporting on executive orders and memoranda and and policy shifts. Uh, that is sort of the bread and butter of White House reporting. So Zeke. I think so. You've been a White House reporter and correspondent since I think the tail end of the Obama years, right? Uh, yeah, this is my uh, uh, my seventh press secretary, uh, but in the Trump era, that does probably doesn't say too much. But uh, <laughs> but yeah, I started on the beat on and off um, at, uh, in, in late 2012, right after the 2012 election, mm. um, and uh, have been on and off between campaigns in the White House ever since. Cool. So I guess you've seen like three different presidents in your career, at least up close. So can you sort of tell us about each of these presidents and their interactions with the press? I mean, for example, we often think of President Trump, of course, was very, quote unquote, anti-mainstream media, as he would say. But it seems like he was always talking to someone. He was There were so many leaks and whatnot. And then with President Biden, he certainly seems a bit more, I guess, choreographed at like first look. Can you sort of give us sort of your take on Obama, Trump, and Biden and like their relationship to the press pool 
the media and sort of just reporters in general? Sure. Uh, starting with, uh, with with President Obama, uh, you know, he was obviously a, a product in a way of a, of a media uh, of, you know, in 2007, 2008, they were very acutely aware of sort of how to position him um, in the most positive light uh, to, for, you know, for, for his political purposes and also for, for you know, they were, their hope was on, on the policy side as well. In terms of as the, but the president himself, though, was not a voracious consumer of, you know, the day-to-day White House reporting. He wasn't some, you know, he would pick up the New York Times or the Washington Post occasionally, but he wasn't sort of, you know, you know, he wasn't reading it for the latest political headlines in, in, in uh, or, you know, wasn't reading, he was far more cerebral in a way and distant from the day-to-day news coverage and focused on the long game. And, you know, uh, he used to invite uh, David Remnick from the New Yorker uh, up to the White House residence as a personal social guest for dinners, uh, for instance, um, and did, did a number of interviews with them that, that he sought out doing interviews with uh, the places he liked to read, the New Yorker or the Atlantic, that was sort of his speed. Um, so, you know, he would engage with the press, but it was, you know, it, it wasn't his, you know, his preferred way of reaching the public. Uh, and, and certainly that was, that was apparent pretty in the later stages of, of his presidency. And President Trump was a very different uh, president, sort of, you know, really the polar opposite in a way uh, from where President Obama was um, in that, you know, he was, he read anything that had his name on it. Uh, you know, and he would often he'd annotate news stories and Sharpie and send it to you. And he was doing that even before he was president. He was back when he was, you know, just a business developer or, or reality TV sh- uh, show host in New York. Uh, but, you know, and while he would, you know, call the, the mainstream media, the press, you know, the enemy of the people, he was, you know, deeply beholden to its coverage and, uh, and up to date on what was being written and said about him. Um, and also wanted to win the press over. You see, you'd see flashes of it in, in, in the briefing room or in the Oval Office at times. Um, he wanted uh, people to, and, and uh, the public at large, but also the people covering him on behalf of that public, uh, you know, to uh, to be to come over to his side. He thought he was always trying to win people over. Um, so often, what you didn't see on camera, uh, there's a lot more of that. Uh, you know, that behind the scenes, it's less less a little less antagonistic, a little bit more cajoling to try to get people, to, uh, reporters to, uh, uh, you, know, when, uh, you know, come over to his side. At the same time, too, it was a White House culture where, from the very earliest days, it was built around leaks. And you know, the very early days of the Trump White House, you had these three you know, mega factions: uh, you know, the establishment wing, you know, the America First wing, and then uh, um, and then sort of the family wing. Um, and they were just at war day in and day out. And over time, but and that really set the tone for the new administration. That really, you know, is still you know carried through all four years in terms of leaks and uh, and personal details and, and private conversations finding their way into White House reporters' copy every single day. There was really few decisions and, and conversations that didn't find their way uh, into the press in, in almost real time. Um, in this new administration, you know, we're just a couple of weeks in. Uh, but you know, certainly a, a lot more choreographed, uh, more methodical, thought out uh, in way of engaging with the press, uh, and uh, you know, the, and the new president, President Biden, you know, is somebody who's been around the press for a very long time and knows how to, how, how to, you know, how to, you know, how to engage with the press and seems to enjoy doing it a, a good bit. At the same time, uh, there are a lot of people around him who, you know, also read all the stories from 2019, where you know. The Biden campaign was written uh, was you know was written off for dead, and you know that they and, and you know and down for the count, and now they are 
in the White House. So there's a also a little bit of a, there's a little bit of a skepticism of, of the of the media there as well. Certainly, and uh, I I do want to get into leaks a bit further on, and I think Ryan has a good question about that. But before we move into that, uh, when we're looking at presidents in general, I guess post Nixon since Watergate. Do you know of like who who were the more accessible presidents and who were the more inaccessible presidents, at least to the media in modern history? Like, can you name a few? I mean, undoubtedly, the most accessible president in modern history was Donald Trump. Uh, there was not a day where we didn't know what was on his mind because he was tweeting it out. He would hold, you know, regular uh, media uh, availabilities in the Oval Office and take questions, you know. All the time, uh, you know, there there was not a lot of doubt what he was thinking, what the people around him were thinking. Were those engagements always substantive? Uh, no, but you know that was you know it, it was never a mystery what was on his mind. Others, you know, George H. W. Bush uh, is somebody who you know is remembered as being you know you know you know fairly open and engaging with the press. Not that they they saw eye to eye ever, and there was always a, a good bit of tension there. But you know, in terms of you know, being doing some regular media availabilities and the like. Um, there's a a, a great uh, professor, Martha Kumar, who's uh, affiliated with Towson University. She her she actually has a desk in the White House uh, uh, press workspace in the basement, uh, sort of adjacent to the um, to the FDR pool, uh, which is sort of where we work. And uh, she tracks these interactions and uh, you know the number of press conferences and and questions taken by presidents and by different stages of the, of, the, of, the, of their presidency. Um, and, and, and it's no doubt that uh, sort of where uh, where we're set by by President Trump sort of blew away all the records. Uh, and but in terms of substantive engagements, I think you can look at you know, the Obama administration when when President Obama did press conferences; they were substantive. He would you know the, the questions would be almost paragraphs long, the answers would be essay length. You really you, were, you got a sense to, to hear it from his own uh, his you know his mouth sort of how he was how, hear him articulate uh, what. He was thinking about what he was doing. Um, those were, you know, valuable to reporters. Uh, you know, similarly, you know, uh, I, I remember watching in school the, some of the Bush press conferences. You know, th- those back and forths are, are, are instructive. Uh, but certainly, uh, you know, the, the, the records set by the Trump administration are, uh, are will probably never be broken. And I, I feel pretty confident saying that. Yeah, absolutely. And so, I mean, as a White House correspondent, you guys are covering presidents, the administration, the White House, and everything kind of in between. But you also have a lot of interaction with officials, senior officials, and a huge portion of the job is sourcing. And I think that's something that uh, many of the public don't really have a good grasp of. And so before we kind of get into leaks, uh, Zeke, I'm really curious about how sourcing occurs and what it kind of looks like in practice. Yeah, sure. I mean, you know, also, another good opportunity to, to clear up a, a misconception about the beat. You know, often folks look at that at that White House press briefing and and view that as the work product of the day. You know, that's one hour, thirty five minutes, or an hour and a half, and in a ten hour or twelve hour day, um, that is not the finished work product of a White House journalist. It's where we're going to get information uh, to to it, it, for our stories, and you know, it, it can at times have a little bit of a performative a- aspect, uh, and part of that is you know, administration sort of. Uh, holding itself to account to the, the public, and that's the symbol that the U.S. government sends to the rest of the world about you know being accountable to people. That's really what the briefing is about. Sourcing is where the bulk of of, of what we do uh, comes through. It's relationships with uh, press staffers and other staffers in the West Wing and in the Eisenhower Executive Office Building, but also crit- critically in other parts of Washington. You know the best you know White House sources 
are often not at the White House and not in their employment. It's the people the White House talks to about policy. Uh, it's the people on Capitol Hill who are briefed in advance who they're controlling to get behind a bill or uh, not get behind a bill or, or, or some policy measure uh, or the, the interest groups who are, who are briefed on things and one, one, one thing spun one way or the other. Um, so, you know, part of it, you know, you know, everything is a White House story, but also everyone is potentially a White House source as a result. So you're, you're, you're constantly just calling around, uh, around town, around the country, uh, just trying to, you know, looking for tips and scouring email for potential stories. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's a small town. And and with that, right, we, we talked about leaks. And so I kind of want to dig into those just because it's such a fascinating aspect of covering the White House and covering uh, the administration, their policies. And so Zeke, in, in your experience, what are the different aspects of leaks, right? Because there's intentional leaks uh, by the administration. There's like, you know, strategic leaks, uh, but also unintentional leaks where uh, that we saw in the Trump administration that uh, uh, President Trump, of course, kind of, you know, called out on Twitter and other, you know, media platforms. And so uh, how would you kind of, you know, describe the leaking, I don't want to call it culture, but I guess maybe the process. And is it, you know, in, do, do correspondents encourage it? Or is it kind of just a, a, an unsaid relationship whereby information is given uh, because they want to get out into a story for many different reasons? I think it's all the above there. And, you know, the, the motivations uh, for leaking, you know, are myriad. It's everything from self-interest, or you know, you're not happy about a way of policy. Um, it was decided, so you want to get back at the person who decided it the other way. Uh, it's because you're trying to get in front of something you don't like, uh, or uh, try to you know try to take credit and feel self-important, or uh, to spin something in a different direction, or uh, because it's a sanctioned leak and it's an attempt by the administration to sort of float a trial balloon about a, an appointment or a policy idea. Um, and they don't want to put their full weight behind it. They want to sort of want to see how it's going to, uh, you know, uh, how it might be received without actually doing that. So, I mean, you know, leaks have a, so many different, you know, purposes. I think the Trump administration, we saw all of them uh, and, you know, pretty much all of them on any given day. Um, and it, which why it's almost, like, it's almost a perfect case study in, in, into why, you know, why people leak and how they do it. Um, and one of the challenges uh, that a lot of journalists face, particularly early on, is that you know just because something tells you something something as a senior administration official, a doesn't mean that they're a senior administration official. It also doesn't mean it's going to happen. And that was you know in a lot of ways the biggest change. Where in, in prior administrations, if you know, senior administration officials told you something, there's a very high degree of confidence, almost a certainty that 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 was the policy decision and it was done. Uh, you know, there you know, in the Trump administration, that leak was. Was, was a weapon that was wielded by warring factions of AIDS. Um, and so, you know, uh, we used to joke uh, in the, some of those early days uh, as reporters, you know, you sort of needed at least two of the three factions, uh, you know, uh, among your sources to have any idea uh, if it was real or not, or, or somebody else just playing games. About these quote-unquote senior administration officials, I, I think like something like, you know, many people have told me and something I've always wondered are like, who are these people? Who are these senior administration officials? And obviously, you probably can't tell us uh, about this in terms of recent history. But uh, historically, like, are these senior administration officials like cabinet secretaries? Like, have there ever been instances historically of the presidents leaking the stuff themselves? Like, or are these just like, you know, assistants and stuff who are sort of 
flies in the walls who are sort of hearing this and leaking it out to the press? Like, are they sort of, is it like water, is it like a Watergate and like deep throat where like they are Bob Woodward's meeting some guy in the basement of a parking garage? Or is it just like, you know, a text just sort of coming in emails and so on? It, it, it's a fascinating question because it's one we, we struggle with as reporters a lot because, you know, um, you're trying to get, you know, you know, you know, the government is, is a massive enterprise and one person's senior administration official is another person's junior assistant. Um, and, you know, a, a, an official may consider themselves senior, but they are not in fact senior. Uh, or they, uh, you know, or, or they are in fact senior, but don't want to be identified as such. Um, uh, so they're, they're all sort you know, those sourcing conversations can get very complicated uh, very fast. I think, you know, there's a tendency, uh, you know, the the SAO, the senior administration official, um, is, is, is that term is thrown around a lot. And I think, you know, one of the things, you know, we all try to do is be as specific as we can with that while maintaining our, you know, confidentiality agreements with those sources in our story. So, you know, you know, if somebody wants to be a senior administration official, I might go back and say, can you be a senior White House official? Or can you be a White House official? Can we, you know, or can you be a cabinet official or a department official? So the reader has a sense of where it's coming from and, you know, either what the motivation is or, you know, as a way to sort of, you know, lend more veracity to that. I think, you know, one of the, you know, this is not, was not true of just of the last administration, but there is a, you know, and readers should be skeptical, a little skeptical of what they read as anonymous, uh, of anonymous sources. You know, why is that person leaking something? They, they're, they're, you know, that, that is entirely rational. And it's our job as journalists to sort of you know, put our credibility behind that work. And, you know, we're putting our names instead of theirs and we trust the source which is why we're going to, you know, tell, you know, present it to you, the reader, in this way. And, but I think it's incumbent on, on journalists to sort of present that information in a way that it's as clear and, um, and, and you know, provides the reader with as much context as possible without violating those sourcing uh, uh, agreements. And and the met the methodology of, of how these conversations take place, you know, they're in person, they're on encrypted apps. It sort of runs the gamut. You know, there are people, you know, who uh, I talk to who I don't interact with on, uh, on, on my phone. I don't want to, there's no, you know, there's no electronic fingerprint. Uh, and there are people who I exclusively interact with that way. Um, it sort of depends on the nature of the information and, and sort of their comfort level and, you know, and the sensitivity of the matter. A bit about leaks and how certain people in the administration or other sort of factions in an administration want to get a story out there. However, have there been instances, and you, you can either speak about this from personal experience or like other experiences or just history, where a story is about to break, the reporter has basically gotten a hold of these leaks or some other sort of situation, and the White House or people in the administration are pressuring reporters not to report on a certain situation? How often does that happen? Does it happen often? Does it happen? <laughs> it, it definitely happens. Uh, not particularly often it's usually around you know specific uh, you know largely national security reasons I mean, you know sometimes you know i've been asked to can i hold off on a story for a day because they have some big formal announcement and i'm like raining on their parade that's not a compelling argument for me to you know withhold news from 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 our readers so that's not gonna can, that conversation may happen but that's not where that you know where where the meat of those conversations really get into it, where you get really get into it it's usually around national security uh, information revealing sensitive programs and, and or deployments 
like my colleagues at the Pentagon and who cover the intelligence community deal with that a lot more frequently than we do necessarily at the White House. One of the ones that we deal with at the White House, uh, you know, not infrequently is, you know, regarding travel. Uh, you know, if a president of the United States were to take uh, what we call an off the record stop um, to, uh, that is not publicized to a site that may not be fully secured uh, or to a war zone. Uh, and, you know, we may get a heads up about it in advance. Yeah. Yeah, we'll know because the press is going to be with them, and you know, there's we sort of reach agreements in terms of what is the safest way. You know, you know uh, that information can be reported as quickly as possible without jeopardizing you know, national security in the process. Actually, take the the converse of this conversation and talk about instances in which reporting and and correspondence have actually influenced uh, presidential decision making and policy making, just because. I imagine, right, there's certainly pressure from the administration, as we talked about, but reporting can also have a monumental impact on policy. And so are there, are there instances that you can think of where this has occurred? Certainly. I mean, presidents and their staffs are, are, are consuming the news. So when, you know, when there is a, an, an editorial in a, in, a, in, a, in a newspaper they like or dislike, that may influence their, their, their policy, policy decisions. You know, there's, uh, you know, they're also not to, you know, this is one that's a little fresh in the mind, but, you know, I was in that one of the first pool sprays uh, with, with President uh, President Biden you know, on his second day or first full day in office on January 21st. And, you know, I asked him about you know, why wasn't his testing all more ambitious? And, you know, a couple of days later, he and his, uh, and, and his vaccination goal rather for, for COVID-19. And, you know, a couple of days later, he and some of his aides were taught, were being more bullish about, uh, you know, vaccinating beyond the hundred million uh, doses in a hundred days, talking to about, talking about 150 potentially and, and pushing that number higher. Um, that's sort of the role of journalists writ large, and you know, we're, we're there to question assumptions and uh, and you know and, and sort of kick the tires on policy and administrations and see what you know see what's you know, check under the hood, and make sure that that the, car, the used car you're buying is 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 good, and make sure that's de- delivering value to the American public. Uh, that's so. You know, I think you're, you're, there are tons of examples, uh, but that's one that's that's fresh in mind of just you know of journalists or the way a question is asked or the way a story is written influencing sort of how an administration is is, is acting and, and and what they're doing in terms of handling a policy matter. Media biases. Is it actually a big problem? Is it a big problem on the left or the right? Or is there even such a thing as left and right? Like, is it a problem in the mainstream media? Is it a problem, essentially? Like, how do we fix this? Because I feel like that's something that I, perhaps like some of our listeners may be wondering, like, does bias sort of seep into how stories are reported, what stories are reported, and so on? So we'd love to get your take on that. It's a larger question than just uh, a White House one. I also I, I often come to this this problem, you know, the other way around. Is sort of you know, it's there's a marketplace of ideas, um, and that that marketplace over the last twenty odd years, maybe longer, has grown much more diverse. Um, and and more polarized, and there are you know, and, and there have been more ways for people to get uh, news and information and opinion that uh, reinforces their own beliefs, or you know, you, or you, they hate watch the thing they don't, you know, uh, the, the the viewpoint they disagree with, and because there's been so, so you know, there's been, it's been so um, in a way democratized, but it, 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 but also that it poses at times an issue for democracy, and that we're consuming information and opinions and. And all of these things from different from different streams, and it makes it harder to have a conversation, uh, you know, a, you know, across the streams. And I think that's one of the you know one of the things that we as a society have to deal with in terms of, uh, of journalists and, uh, and 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 biases. I mean, you know, I 
I'm not going to pretend that journalists don't have uh, that some journalists don't have bias and they're human beings. But I think you know, by and large, the job of a, of, 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 of of journalists is to sort of is to set all of those aside. You know, I might like the New York Giants, but if I'm a sports reporter, like that is not that doesn't factor into into my thinking if I'm covering football. Um, so it, you know, I have to sort of you know, I can't. You know, nobody's going to want to read my copy. My, you know, it's not going to be impactful. It's not going to be you know, useful if you know if every cop, you know, copy ends. Every story ends with you know, bring back Eli Manning. Uh, you know, it's it, we have to set aside our biases, our our, our inclinations, and, and and really present uh, facts and and in truth to the American public, and that's our that's our our credibility. You know, that that's the whole whole pers- purpose of the enterprise. And so I think that's, you know, you know, yes, the, yes, journalists, you know, are human. Uh, but, you know, at the same time, you know, I think you know, maybe the bigger issue is not necessarily the journalist, but it's how that information is ultimately fil- filtered down to the consumer. You, you know, you mentioned that we live in polarized times or we're hyperpartisan. And so uh, how would you kind of assess the confidence of the American people in the media and in, you know, the White House correspondents in particular? And what's kind of the feeling amongst you and your colleagues as to the relationship between the media and the American public uh, at this given moment. Show it's not great. It's you know it's 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 you know trust in institutions of all sorts, the media, government, and, and like are, are are at roughly historic lows, and that's that's a problem for our society. And it's, it's bigger than you know, any one relationship. There, I think it's one that you know every journalist is mindful of, uh, and we and we try to address. You know, one of the the things you know we are as I said before, we're, we're human. We get things wrong. Uh, you know. We get things wrong frequently, whether that be I, I misspelled somebody's name or I had a typo or uh, something, something larger. And you know, when we're wrong, you know, our job is you know part of that maintain that relationship with with readers and and, and the American public uh, by and large is writ large is sort of we have to shout it from the rooftops. You know, I was wrong yesterday uh, because without that, um, you know, that that that's sort of that that's the 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 bedrock of our credibility. Uh, with, with the American public, is that we'll tell you when we're right, we'll tell you when we're wrong, and and it, with with at equal volume, um, just to make sure that you have the information you need to be an active citizen uh, in in our democracy. That's you know I think that's it's it's really important. You know we're you know we try to be right and not get things wrong as much as possible, but you know things happen. We are you know we 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 get things wrong, uh, and that's not intentional. It's not an attempt to manipulate anything. It's not an attempt to. Uh, uh, to undermine anything, it's just you know we're human and mistakes happen, but it's incumbent on us. And because of the world, you know, we, we need to repair that relationship with the American public. But also, that relationship has always been built on this this notion of if we're wrong, you know, we, we own it very publicly. And I think that's you know uh, you know is is essential. Um, and if we're going to go to if we're going to try to re- rebuild uh, you know trust in our institution from where it is right now. So one thing I really want to hit on with you is social media. So, I mean, I follow you on Twitter at Zeke Miller. Uh, I follow Caitlin Collins from CNN and then Maggie Haberman from NY Times, in addition to a range of other White House reporters, White House correspondents. Because I feel like these days, I don't even have to read, with all due respect, due respect I don't have to even read some of the news articles because Twitter has sort of changed how I read news. And I sort of just see the stories being reported via tweets. How has Twitter and the rise of social media changed the way in which you report stuff on the president? Um, I, th- I think uh, you know 
I came of age on on Twitter in a lot of ways. I, uh, I, I got one of my first jobs in, in journalism in part because somebody recognized it, you know, followed me on Twitter. Um, so, uh, you know, it, it, it's something near and dear, but I think we've seen an evolution too in how social media is used. Um, but, you know, I think, you know, in, for, for journalists, it, is, it has made the news more immediate in, in a lot of ways. And I say, say this as a wire service reporter, it has made a lot of journalists into sort of mini wire services in, in terms of they can broadcast to followers what is happening in, in real time. Um, I think, you know, it has sped up the news cycle in ways that, uh, you know, seemed unfathomable just, you know, just a few years ago, just how quickly uh, information can spread across the, the globe. Uh, I think, you know, when, when, when particularly that becomes an issue when we're talking if there's, you know, not, not even misinformation, just, you know, honest errors sometimes just, you know, will get a lot more traction than, than, than the correction. And that's just, you know, the nature of, of social media. And it's not, it's, it's very difficult to fix. Uh, but uh, I, I think, you know, it, it also, you know, for journalists, it's also, it, it, you know, particularly Twitter is, is, a, is a bit of an echo chamber. I think we all recognize that now more than we did, you know, five, seven years ago. And that's a good thing because it means that we're, you know, we're, you know, we know that whatever conversation happens there is not reflective of what is happening, you know, in a coffee shop in Dayton, Ohio, or, uh, or, or, or around a dinner table uh, in, in a different country. It's, it's, you know, it, it's just a, a, you know, largely a DC conversation or a coastal conversation at times. Um, and, you know, or, you know, just recognizing that forces us to, you know, not treat that as a, you know, as the be all and end all and to, seek out different, uh, different sources and, and different, uh, and, and, and different conversations and talk to more people, not online and, you know, on the phone and in person to actually, uh, you know, be able to tell their stories effectively. And you touch on, you know, social media and earlier you talked about how the Trump administration was considerably more accessible, I guess, to the media, partly due to social media. But I also want to touch on something else having to do with accessibility, which is the press pool and like sort of the physical proximity it has to the president of the United States. So essentially, does the president have an obligation to take the press pool wherever he or hopefully someday she will go? For example, I remember maybe a few weeks ago or a month ago, president or then president-elect Biden had gone to church and I remember seeing on Twitter, not too many people were necessarily happy about that in terms of reporters and so on, because he didn't alert the press pool, but he went to church. Is that, does the president have an obligation then to take the press pool wherever they go? This gets into, uh, you know, a a tradition that has developed in a way uniquely American tradition in terms of how the president of the United States or or a major party candidate for president of the United States or a nominee for president of the United States is is covered uh, by the press. it's developed, you know, in large part through tragedy. Whether that be, you know, the Kennedy assassination, um, the the shooting of attempted assassination, assassination of, of Ronald Reagan, or, or 9/11, it's uh, the desire to have a small group of uh, of journalists around the president of the United States at all times, uh, and you know, in the event of uh, of a national emergency, in the event of you know something small, as you know. A, mis- a misstep, the, the American public can see it. Um, it doesn't exist, um, you know, to that degree anywhere in the world. What it means is that you know there is a thirteen or fourteen uh, person group uh, group of journalists, and uh, from the wires, from print outlets, from radio, from television, from still photographer, still photographers, 
who you know will travel on Air Force One with the president, uh, stay in their hotel or a very uh, an adjacent one. They'll be at the White House every day, Saturdays, Sundays, you know, from you know seven or eight o'clock in the morning until until dark. On the off chance they go out for dinner or they go to church or they uh, have to make an address to the nation. It's both a uh, you know it, it, there's no doubt that it is a burden on the people who are in the office uh, uh, who, uh, who hold the office of the president, but it's also a resource for the American public in the event that in the event the unfathomable happens, uh, it will be documented so that the public knows what their government's doing on their behalf. Yeah, I mean that's a, a crucial aspect of covering the White House and the president. Uh, and I, I want to turn next to a kind of a lighthearted aspect of the. White House Correspondents Association, that being the annual dinner. And so, Zeke, could you could you kind of explain for our listeners who may not be familiar with the annual dinner, first, what it is, and then kind of the relationship between the president and the press and how it's kind of highlighted in the annual dinner and how maybe over time uh, presidents have reacted to the dinner. Of course, President Trump uh, didn't really enjoy the dinner or didn't enjoy the idea of the prospect of the dinner, uh, whereas other presidents may have had a more... Um, amicable relationship or maybe a better sense of humor sure i mean the the dinner it stands you know is not was not the sort of the first big washington annual dinner but it, it has certainly become the the best known among them uh others are the gridiron club or the alfalfa club or another sort of you know dc you know black tie uh soirees i mean it, it you know it is an opportunity for um you know journalists to celebrate the first amendment an opportunity for uh, government officials and foreign dignitaries also to do the same and you know to you know, set aside their uh, whether it be partisan or professional differences, differences of opinion, you know, frustrations with how they've been covered uh, at times um, and, and get together in a room and, and celebrate um, the right for those disagreements to happen uh, and, and do it in, in, in what in, particularly in the last you know several decades in a, in a lighthearted way and you know in the 50s and 60s and instead of humor it was large you know musical productions and or or uh, or or, uh, or theater productions or uh, and, and, and with musical numbers and the like or orchestras uh, it's evolved since then with the times into something maybe a little, that's a little bit more accessible to folks and uh, certainly certainly since um, the television cameras uh, have been let in. Um, has taken on a, a national uh, profile as an opportunity for uh, you know the the pre, you know the pre, you know the uh, essentially what what has been a bit of a comedic roast of the president, but also an opportunity for the president to get up there and and, and roast the the press a little bit themselves. But for me, the most poignant part of that dinner every year uh, is you know that last bit of when whatever president is speaks. Um, and it's a, a full-throated defense of the First Amendment and, you know, and the right for everyone to, to report. And that doesn't exist in a lot of places around the world. Um, and the fact that we can use that night you know, to, to elevate that part, that part, that message uh, around the country and around the world, I think, is you know, one of the most redeeming parts of the, of the, entire, of the entire weekend. So Zeke, as we begin to like sort of round out this conversation, I'd love to get some cool stories you might have of your personal interactions with presidents. I think on January 21st, you might have been the first recipient of the quote unquote, come on, man, from President Biden uh, in his uh, term. Uh, do you have any other stories of your interactions with presidents, either Biden, Trump or Obama or other presidents? 
Um, sure. Um, I, I didn't have a ton of, uh, of one-on-one interaction with, with President Obama or small group interaction. It was, you know, mostly, uh, mostly briefings. I was, I was fairly new to the beat. Uh, I, I had a lot with, uh, with President Trump, both as a, when he was a candidate and then a, a, when I was uh, a White House reporter, uh, interviewed him uh, a number of times. Uh, when I was at Time Magazine, uh, he had a small group uh, of myself and my colleagues to dinner in the blue room of the White House uh, to discuss his first hundred days. Um, it happened to be the night before uh, he fired James Comey, uh, which was uh, at the time not something we we saw we saw happening. But uh, you know, I was it was in a number of meetings, both uh, in my in my journalist capacity and then in my correspondence association capacity with with, with, with the president. Um, I had the opportunity to interview. Uh, uh, then Vice President Joe Biden once on an Amtrak. Uh, I think it was back in 2014. I made the rookie mistake of of opening with small talk about how frequently he rode the train, um, and I got the long history of of, of of Joe Biden and Amtrak, which is very well known, um, and and ate up a bunch of my of my interview time. But uh, uh, you know, certainly you know there there are going to be a lot of colorful interactions, and there always are between between reporters. Um, and, and presidents, uh, it's you know part of what makes our uh, our system of government and our, our and our, our democracy strong is that there there can be these opportunities. Sometimes they're testy, sometimes they're they're funny, sometimes you know uh, you know it's it's a president com- uh, comforting uh, uh, somebody who who had a family tragedy uh, or comforting give the nation in the times of a national tragedy, uh, and, and reporters are there for that too. Um, it's, you know, it's a, it, it, it really is a, a privilege to have that front row seat, uh, uh, to history and, and write the first draft of it, um, at, at, in these interactions with, uh, with presidents. And with that, Zeke, I want to thank you very much for what has been a truly fantastic conversation. We've covered a wide variety of topics, talking about many important things, particularly how crucial, how central the press is to our democracy. And so for our listeners, I encourage you to check out Zeke's reporting and follow him on Twitter at Zeke J. Miller. Zeke, uh, once again, thank you very much for joining us today. Oh, thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure. To hear other fascinating conversations, subscribe to the podcast and follow us on social media at Burnbag Pod. Thank you for listening. This is the Burnbag Podcast.